Let's open this episode with a game, a word association test to be exact. There was this famous psychologist by the name of Carl Jung, and he created this test to better understand what goes on inside our minds. The idea is that the answer you give reveals a lot about your subconscious mind. So for example, I say dog and maybe you say walk. That lets me know that you're active, or at least you wanna make sure that your little dog gets exercise. Now, if I say dog and you say baby, well, you're that person that puts cute clothes on your dog. So when I say dark web, what's the first word that comes to your mind? Is it scary? Is it dangerous? Well, that tells me that you're not a criminal. I mean, a more nefarious person might actually think money since their mind goes straight to all the illegal ways that they can make a quick buck. But maybe when I say dark web, you think hitmen or drugs. You wouldn't be wrong for thinking that. I mean, here's a little fun fact. Most online hitmen are just cops in disguise. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard about people forking over thousands of dollars to undercover cops. Now, all their money in their bank account will go towards their criminal defense trial. You know, they need to stay out of jail. Okay, maybe your mind thought about something totally different when I said dark web. If I played a word association game with Victor Benjamin, I bet he'd say cybersecurity, analytics, or maybe even web mining. You see, Victor is much more than an ASU professor. He is a total expert in computers, machine learning, and cybersecurity. And today, we're going to share some surprising lessons about the dark web. Now, speaking of which, here's lesson number one. The dark web will never disappear. It's basically a private part of the internet, since you can't find any of this stuff on, you know, run-of-the-mill search sites. But not everything on the dark web is illegal, but it's the first place that shady operations usually set up shop. Now, the bottom line is that there's a lot more to the internet than the stuff that you find on the surface. And in this episode, Victor and I are going to take you on a deep dive. I mean, have you ever wondered how the dark web really works? Do you want to know why the government can't shut it down? This episode is going to answer your questions. You're also going to learn what kind of things you can buy on the dark web and what to expect when you actually browse there. All right, a spoiler. It's a lot more complicated than you think. But don't worry, Victor and I are going to break it all down for you. We've got some nuggets of wisdom you're going to be chewing on for a while after this episode. And by the time that we're done, you're going to know so much more about one of the Internet's biggest mysteries. So stick with us. We've got some really great stuff coming your way that you don't want to miss. When people talk about the dark web, they make it sound like this shark-infested ocean. They say it's dangerous, mysterious. Most folks treat the dark web as the internet version of the Bermuda Triangle. I mean, it's true to an extent. There are a lot of dangers lurking on the dark web. But just like the real ocean, there's a lot more going on under the surface. I mean, you can find beautiful kelp forests and coral reefs in shark habitats. The dark web is a lot like that. It can look really scary at first glance, but there's a lot of really impressive stuff you won't find anywhere else. So today's guest is ASU professor Victor Benjamin. He knows more about this than most people. And in this episode of Kim Commando Explains, we're going to slip on our scuba gear and dive into the deep web. Are you ready? Victor, let's jump in. So, Victor, so many people hear the term dark web, right? And they think like, oh, no, it's this awful, nasty place where there's criminals and crime, and I can buy hitmen and drugs and child porn and all that other stuff. Um, how would you define the dark web? 
Wow. Okay. So that's definitely true. Uh, part, parts of uh, people's awareness of the dark net and all those evil dark things uh, it is true, but there's also um, maybe a gray neutral or, or good side to it. Uh, so the dark net really uh, is just um, like an underground portion of the internet where people are wanting to have these communities that are disconnected from the mainstream, you know, day-to-day uh, -day traditional internet, uh, your traditional social media platforms and all that. Uh, now, why they are wanting to hide their communities, um, you know, within the dark net, there are various reasons. Uh, some of them could be for illegal, you know, illicit reasons, um, trading drugs or hacking tools or that type of thing. Uh, but there could also be uh, legitimate reasons. If you are a political dissident, for example, in a totalitarian country, um, maybe you would want to have some sort of information technology and a way to communicate uh, without really being visible to the open internet, right? Uh, or we've even heard of people being unable to uh, purchase prescription drugs in their home country because of prices oh. or whatnot. And so they actually go to the dark net to um, get the medicines they need. And uh, there's many instances of that. So uh, so it could be, you know, the name dark net gives the, the implication that it's bad, but it's really more so just hidden. And so why is it hidden? I mean, how does it become hidden? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's a number of ways uh, a website could become hidden within the darknet. Probably the most popular is that they will uh, use a different um, protocol that requires some special software to connect to the server hosting this darknet uh, website or the darknet infrastructure. So I'll give you an example. Today, if you want to access the internet, you would just open up your web browser and go to you know, www.whateverwebsiteyou'regoingto.com, right? Um, within the darknet, it's it's a bit different. So you might have a, a browser, but it's not using those standard internet protocols, right? It, it needs to be routed through a special uh, gateway. So the most, exp the most popular one is one called Tor, that's T-O-R, and it's also known as the Onion Router. And uh, that um, essentially takes your web requests and routes them to a specialized network and not the traditional, uh, you know, infrastructure that supports the traditional internet. So, so you just need some special software to take your internet communications and route them to non non traditional directions, and then, um, you know, the the darknet uh, is built out from there. Yeah, many years ago, I wanted to take a look at what was out there, mm -hmm. and I just hopped on my laptop uh, and really didn't give it too much of thought. This is probably, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years ago. And so I, I get into the dark web and then all of a sudden I get this message on my screen that says, do not shut your laptop down. And it gives my IP address that we are now infecting your computer with all this stuff. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that was so ignoramus of me just hopping right on and not really having much security on this particular laptop. I mean, it's uh, it's really not for the, I, I, and I think it still is not for the uninitiated. I mean, this is something where if you're just used to going to amazon.com and going to Facebook and Twitter, uh, you need to have, as you mentioned, Victor, you have to be using Tor and you have to have some certain precautions. And I, as I tell folks, whatever primary computer it is, maybe you don't want to use if that's your full production machine. Um, let's talk a little bit about privacy and anonymity. Mm -hmm. Is that is it possible to have that 
truly, I mean, you talked about dissidents and buying pharmaceuticals and is it really capable of being fully private and fully anonymous? Uh, that, that's a good question. Uh, so it's, it's definitely a yes or no question, I would say. Uh, so I think for most users, the answer would be no. Uh, I think a lot of users have the expectation that you could just use Tor or a different Darknet client and just connect to the Darknet and you're anonymous from there. Uh, but just accessing it doesn't give you inherent anonymity. There's many tricks uh, that can be played against you to really identify who you are. So for example, um, if I am not on Tor and just using my normal internet browser and I go to a website, they might, dra they might drop a uh, cookie or some sort of file sure. uh, on my computer, right? And then when I uh, am on Tor and I'm utilizing the darknet, uh, that cookie is still on my hard drive from when I wasn't anonymized, right? So they could still potentially uh, look into my system, uh, if I'm using the incorrect browser or something and identify that cookie and uh, go from there, right? Um, there's also, I remember a couple of years back, a, uh, a vulnerability with JavaScript where um, it, essentially the same thing where someone could put an identifier on your machine when you're just using the internet normally. And then even when you're on tour uh, using JavaScript uh, you know, functionality, they could still identify who you are. Um, so, so just connecting to the darknet itself will not give you anonymity. There's other things you have to do to make sure you are scrubbing your uh, identity and not leaking any personally identifiable information. Uh, and that's just from a, a one-off actor, you know, dropping files on your hard drive. Uh, there's also been studies of um, how many resources would you need to sort of hijack the Tor system or, or other darknet systems. Uh, because a lot of them are peer-to-peer -peer and uh, open source, right? So anyone can participate. Well, if you host enough of these uh, entry points into the darknet, you begin to, uh, you know, get this encompassing view of who's connecting and who's utilizing the darknet. So if you are a nation state very bent on, you know, identifying dissidents and uh, monitoring who's connecting to this darknet and what they're trying to do there, uh, you could just deploy many of these, um, you know, gateway servers that connect or bridge users from the traditional internet to the darknet and uh, monitor their connections from that standpoint. Uh, so someone with enough resources and uh, who is committed to um, attacking the darknet can do so. Yeah. Yeah, they can do that. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's really interesting when you start looking at all the pathways with the internet. I mean, just as you mentioned, I mean, in order to get to the, the dark net, you have to go through the regular <laughs> protocols in order to fire up certain things. Um, you know, in all of your experience with cybersecurity, uh, what, what are some examples of things that you saw on the dark net that, that with all your experience, you sat back and you went, I can't believe I just read about that, or I can't believe I just heard that happen. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of them. Probably the most uh, interesting one to me personally that aligns with my uh, research in cybersecurity is this uh, hacktivist campaign called Operation Green Rights. So a hacktivist is someone who is a hacker and their motivation is more political uh, or you know environmental causes or something like that. Other hackers might be motivated by, for financial reasons or, or um, you know other reasons, but 
but these hacktivists started a campaign called Operation Green Rights, and it was actually um, started in 2014 to target the French government because France was uh, presumably, presumably uh, destroying some natural wetlands to uh, transition into agriculture. And it, environmentalists were uh, getting riled up against the French government and they launched Operation Green Rights uh, that snowballed into a hacktivist campaign that did not just target the French government, but also any Western firm that was accused of causing environmental damage. So Monsanto, uh, DuPont, Syngenta, wow. uh, many different uh, companies were targeted. And you would actually start seeing the email addresses and passwords belonging to those email accounts of employees working at these firms, uh, <laughs> ending up on the dark web. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So uh, it was crazy to see um, how that movement sparked off as just this limited interaction against the French government. And it just snowballed uh, more and more into a, a global campaign for environmental rights. Uh, what kind of what kind of time frame did it take from the inception to when you started seeing all these email addresses and these passwords? I mean, did it happen in a week, in a month, or was it quicker than oh, that? Oh, yeah. So definitely uh, there was quick wins, I would say, right in the beginning for the hacktivists. So we did see some um, passwords and emails get dumped within the first initial weeks. And that caused a lot of hype and excitement among the hacker community. And uh, we saw a, a campaign that lasted several months from, from that point forward. But, but it's interesting that when you talk about any type of action that happens online, mm -hmm that like groups will find like groups yeah. and then exponentially whatever that movement is it, it just happens it seemingly to me it just happens so quickly mm -hmm. uh versus like in the old school days we'd have to actually like call somebody write a letter whatever yeah. it may be in order to bring a like group of people yeah. together um, I'll, I'll give a caveat to that actually uh if i can expand on it um uh so one thing that hackers have to be careful about is there is Oftentimes, honor among thieves, where hackers do yes. not, uh, you know, attack each other and whatnot. But sometimes we do see actors enter these hacktivist campaigns or these uh, coordinated efforts to disseminate their own hacking tools. Like, hey, use this to help you launch attacks against the French government, for example. But those hacking tools themselves have backdoors. So we, so the hackers themselves will end up uh, trying to attack each other and. Uh, it becomes a very convoluted mess. So there is kind of a, a call to arms where hackers want to congregate and group together. Uh, but after a certain level of critical mass is reached, uh, there are, you know, malicious actors who enter that space and try to infect other hackers and so on. So it, it becomes, uh, I guess, this nasty cycle that, that kind of occurs. I, I recently spoke to, he's a cyber forensics expert who works on ransomware cases mm -hmm. and he's called in by the insurance companies to negotiate with the threat actors. And so he was recently called in for a hospital that was taken down. Uh, they were actually using pen and paper, the charts and all this, you know, nightmare mm -hmm. type scenarios. The insulin pumps are down the cardiac machines are down. And so they call up this guy and he actually sent me a text showing me the conversation between him and the threat actor where the threat actor said, you know, we are demanding X amount in ransomware. And he wrote him and said, do you understand that this is a hospital? And the guy wrote him back and said, didn't know that I'll get back to you. Mm -hmm. 
and then wrote him back 24 hours later and said, here's all the decryption keys. We're really sorry. We, we didn't know that you were a hospital. So it, it's kind of like, yes, there is kind of an honor among thieves that there are certain institutions that maybe that the ransomware and the threat actors or whatever you want to call them, the bad guys and gals that they, they won't hit. Um, you know, we hear about now that ransomware is obviously still up and running, speaking of, and that it's targeting uh, social engineering and small outfits, doctors' offices, as well as large businesses and municipalities and, you know, anybody under the sun. And so now there's this movement on the dark net of ransomware as a service. So we all know about software as a service. I mean, it used to be where you'd go out and you'd buy Microsoft Word or PowerPoint, Excel or Adobe, whatever it is. But now it's all up on the web and it's called software as a service because basically you're not downloading the software. You're not buying the software. You're just going to a website and you're using it. Well, what's happening on the dark net right now is that if you want to suddenly go into the ransomware business is that you can get on the dark net and you can say, hey, look at me, I've got some money. And they even provide toll-free support numbers. That's right. So if you have customers that you hit with ransomware, that they actually provide tech support so that somebody who doesn't know about Bitcoin, they can figure out how to send you your Bitcoin, Ethereum, Dogecoin, whatever it is that you want. So stay right where you are. So come right back. We're going to talk to Victor Benjamin more about cybersecurity, the dark net, and really software as a service just fascinating. Hey, welcome back to Kim Commando Explains. We're in conversation with Victor Benjamin, big time security expert, cybersecurity expert and researcher. And Victor, the software as a service, it just insanely interests me that we have this whole portion of society where I could go and suddenly, just like I want to make a video or keep my books or do anything like that, that now I can tap into, I guess you'd say, threat actor experience and software and downloads and suddenly get into the business? Yeah, so it's very fascinating stuff. A lot of the hackers out there are, they don't see themselves as bad people. They're just trying to make a quick buck on the dark net, right? And uh, th this is an increasing trend we're seeing where uh, hackers are offering different hacking tools or hacking services for pay. So they become mercenaries for hire. Um, a lot of times this could be from the standpoint of offering a, you know, a hacking tool that has become uh, obfuscated and fully undetectable to existing antivirus software. So they might uh, sell that, uh, particularly with ransomware, or they may uh, conduct a service where they uh, perform the whole attack for the client. Um, wow. Yeah, so, so we see more and more of this sort of activity. So Victor, how much do these kits cost? I mean, do I have to come up with $5,000 or $10,000? I mean, is it something that anybody could get into if they really wanted to? Yeah, regarding cost, uh, there are a variety of tiers that are accessible to different, uh, different customer bases, um, anywhere from, you know, the tens or, or $50 or so uh, to a couple hundred, depending on the sophistication of the attack, uh, what type of vulnerability is being used, if it's something that's relatively unknown, uh, you know, like a zero-day vulnerability that's going to be a lot more expensive than uh, performing some attack that relies on uh, known vulnerabilities that may be patched by potential targets. So there is a, a great scope of uh, pricing available out there. But for the average person, there are accessible attacks and services out there you can afford today. 
if if you have a potential target in mind, right? And uh, <laughs> and you're it's crazy. It's, you know, it's just it's just crazy to hear you say that because uh, it's just like, oh yeah, sure, I could do that too. You know, I mean, yeah, and it's amazing. Uh, oh, and you're absolutely right about uh, customer service. A lot of these places do have their uh, you know phone number you can call or even warranty policies. So we we see something called carding shops quite a bit as well, where uh, perhaps a hack was successfully conducted and they've stolen, you know, the hackers have stolen a lot of credit cards or social security numbers. They'll post that up on a shop. And if you are a consumer who buys these stolen credit cards and it turns out that card that you purchased, purchased does not work, uh, you can actually get a refund or an exchange uh, at this you know, <laughs> hacking shop. So, so they've developed very sophisticated uh, services and, and customer service experiences. So how much data is about, how, how much data is on the dark net about the average American? I mean, our, what would it be like our name, our social security number, mm -hmm. our address, uh, maybe, you know, obviously our credit cards, mm -hmm. tax information. What else is out there? Yeah. Uh, so you'd be surprised. There's quite a bit. Uh, you can imagine there are perfectly legitimate websites today out there where you can search for your public records, right? And find your address, uh, all email addresses you've ever used potentially, um, even your criminal arrest records, right? So if that's available on, you know, the traditional mainstream internet, we can only imagine what is in the dark net. And um, there, there could be, uh, you know, if you were an early internet user in the 2000s, um, likely your email addresses you've used back then, those services were compromised and your emails were leaked. Uh, as well as your passwords you were using at the time, all that information is um, available out there on the dark net. So, so depending on how long you've been using the internet personally, uh, you might be able to go and you know retrace that history on the dark net. Uh, probably someone has a file out there uh, containing details of what you've done. So, so I'd say for the average American, there's actually um, a substantial amount more than you would think. And of course. The most compromised is the password, is it? Uh, I would say definitely email addresses and passwords. And the reason being is because, you know, over your history of using the Internet, uh, you know, each individual, uh, we've likely registered to many websites and web services out there. Right. And it's only a matter of time before one of them gets compromised. Um, and when it gets compromised, you're going to see your details eventually end up on the dark net. Uh, becomes, it becomes even more incredibly painful when you're using the same credentials across many web platforms. because yeah. All, oh, yeah, that's a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. All it takes is a hacker finding your credentials for one website. They're going to go try it at Google. They'll try it at Netflix, uh, your PayPal, uh, anything they can try to get access to to learn more about you and potentially um, disrupt your you know, financial details or, or try to steal money from you or whatnot. You know, we always talk about passwords, you know, that they need to be eight letters, upper, lower case, a gang sign, a hieroglyphic. I mean, anything else that you can throw in it. Uh, may, you know, over the years, it's been eight characters, 12 characters, 15 characters. Is there a specific methodology that you would recommend for a password? Yes. Uh, so really, the secret is to make it as long as you can, because a computer doesn't necessarily distinguish between a, a letter, a number or some other sort of symbol. So whether you're using 
a one or an exclamation mark, it's it's the same to a computer. So really the, the key is to have as long as long as a password as you can and to make it easily rememberable. So the thing I uh, choose for myself is to select quotes from books or lyrics of songs where it's something that I can very easily remember, but you can uh, chain together several words and come up with a lengthy password. And, and, you know, and that's what I've done too. And then you can make it unique for each website. Mm-hmm. And when you look at it, it looks like a whole bunch of mumbo jumbo, but in reality, it's like you said, it's a phrase. It's a, it's something that you know that the letter I is an exclamation mark or an S is a dollar sign. And so you can come up with your own moniker so that this way you don't use the same password at every single website. And so many people do that. And I'm sure you've seen the list, Victor, where it's like the most commonly used passwords, right? One, two, three, four, five, six. And then the, then they go, okay, it's going to make, I'm going to make it really hard. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Or, or, or they say, let me in. That's always another one. I mean, or password one, two, three, four, or it's your date of birth or whatever it be. So, you know, so you, you want to come up with that, that phrase, that thing that you are going to remember that is unique to you and then make it unique for whatever site that you're visiting. And you can come up with a formula in your head. What do you think, based on all your years of experience, what do you think of password managers? Yeah, so password managers, I personally am not a huge fan of because I see it as a single point of failure, but that's just uh, my perspective. I think they've been uh, effectively used by others, but um, you do have to kind of worry about uh, you know, the master key that that unlocks everything. So, so if you're going to use a password manager, I would say uh, just be careful that um, no one obtains that the one password to you know unlock your uh, the, the manager itself. I suppose um, another thing I see trending that I think will be increasingly important is just two-factor authentication. So you can type your password into a website, but then it will send you a text to your cell phone and uh, with a code you have to type in or something. And just that additional uh, code or you know signal it sends you that you have to confirm really helps authenticate that you are who you say that you are, and that can uh, close out a lot of potential uh, cyber attacks against your accounts. Okay, so you, so the password drill is the same, and two-factor authentication. You want to set that up on all your accounts. And you want to be smart. You want to have security software, uh, and you want to make sure that you're not going to phishing websites and responding to scammers. I mean, gosh, there's just so much that the average consumer <laughs> needs to remember is are, is there one particular point of failure that you see time and time again uh usually the user is too trusting right uh and or uh the not paying attention to details and slips up and, and gets into something they shouldn't uh but you know one thing that would help most users a lot that i don't see them practicing today is to practice maybe using two separate browsers uh, so one browser, personally, I like to use one browser for all of my uh, personal confidential stuff like banking and all that, and another browser for uh, my general internet surfing. And the reason why I make this suggestion is that there are an increasing amount of vulnerabilities that are browser-based, um, such as getting uh, JavaScript code to run without, uh, you know, a server could get JavaScript code to run on your local computer without you really authorizing that code to run. And that could lead to vulnerabilities within that browser uh, space. So 
separating your online activities by browsers helps mitigate some of that where if one browser gets compromised, hopefully it was not the browser that you use to log in uh, to sensitive websites and it may have your passwords cached or something like that, right? Uh, so that um, can help a lot. But beyond that, just practicing good uh, internet habits, paying attention to um, URLs that, you, you, that you're not getting fished, uh, make sure that you're you know, on a legitimate website. Uh, it just takes a level of uh, awareness, I'd say. Are, are, are there specific browsers that you recommend that you use? Uh, so they're all pretty decent today. Uh, I guess the standards are, you know, if you're on um, Windows, uh, it comes packed with Edge. Internet Explorer, Safari on iOS. I also like Google Chrome and Firefox, uh, but those aren't the only ones. Uh, I think a lot of the browsers are uh, kind of converging on the, the base technology they're using. And so they're actually all becoming fairly similar aside from their um, front-end interface, how it looks to the user. But nonetheless, just using two separate browsers, um, you know, it, it uh, has a different directory structure on your computer and um, code will interact with the browsers independently and they won't cross over. So having to... You know, that, that's, that's pretty smart. I, I have some questions. We're going to blow through these very quickly. Okay. Um, questions from people about that I've received about the dark web. And so, so let's go through these really quickly. Okay. Um, okay. Here's a question. Why doesn't the dark web just get closed down? Uh, it's peer to peer and open source. You can't really just close it down. Um, how big is the dark web? Uh, <laughs> unknown, I guess it's huge. Uh, yeah. Unknown. Yeah. Um, here's another one. This isn't, we didn't really get into this, mm -hmm. but how is the dark web? Is the dark web the same as the deep web? Yes. Different terminology, but um, yes. Mm -hmm. But yes, it is. Okay. Uh, we talked about privacy and anonymity. Oh, here's, here's a great one. Uh, will I get into trouble if I simply take a look, if I simply get to her, if I simply go into, cause I want to see how a, storefront looks on the dark net depends what country you're in but in america you won't be in trouble uh and finally if i go on the dark net does it make me a bigger target for hackers yes in what way uh so a lot of these dark net websites will have uh browser vulnerabilities like running in javascript loaded on the server to infect unsuspecting users so if you're not uh, taking proper precautions and you're just surfing the dark net, uh, if your browser is vulnerable, you might uh, get infected by one of these server-side scripts. Now, if you're using the most up-to-date Tor browser, it is typically safeguarded against these attacks. Uh, so there's a modified version of Firefox called the Tor browser, and that is, uh, you know, has JavaScript turned off and stripped out, uh, as well as a different different levels of security precautions taken to prevent uh, what we call a remote code execution attack. And the remote code execution attack would be the, uh, the server executing JavaScript code through your browser without you knowing. Okay, one last question. What do you think the biggest threat this coming year is gonna be for cybersecurity? The biggest threat. That's my, that's my question to you. That's not, that's not from a listener. That's yeah. I'm wondering, cause you know, you're deep in trench of this. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say user error. I think um, the software engineers and companies are doing 
a better and better job integrating security within software. But uh, the failing point is still uh, typically the user. Uh, either they don't appropriately use a software application and, and skimp out on some security features, or they just use really weak passwords, you know, or even leave a, a notepad with their password on their desk, for example. <laughs> so you can uh, build as much inherent security as you want into a system, but you know, the user at the end of the day has to use the system appropriately. And sometimes they just don't. Yeah. We, I, I have a campaign that I've been trying to get off the ground and it's just, I want people to remember one phrase, just one phrase. And that's stop and think, don't click the link. Yes. Right. Yes, exactly. You know, there's always this sense of urgency, like you better do it right now. You know? So, but if we, they just stop and think, just stop, take a deep breath thing and then don't click, don't click the link. I think we'll be much better. Uh, Victor, thank you so much for joining us. And whenever you have something huge, something great, something you want to talk about, um, call us, ping me, whatever, uh, DM me, whatever, because I, I really, you know, you're, you're really wonderful. And I can tell that we just scratched the surface and I want to be able to continue this dialogue. Okay. We'll do. Thank you very much. Okay, remember what I said earlier, the dark web will never disappear. I mean, in this episode, we taught you a lot about how the dark web works. And I want to end with this note. Do not ever forget how dangerous it can be. Accessing the dark web, it's not illegal, but there's a lot of things on there that can land you into a lot of trouble. The federal agents took down Silk Road. That was that popular online marketplace for drugs. I mean, they can take you down too, if you're not careful. And don't forget how much disturbing content is on there. I mean, you might stumble onto some really horrifying materials. I'll tell you, it's not for the faint of heart. So unless you have a really compelling reason to go to the dark web, just stay away. Hey, thanks for listening. Just a quick reminder. If you like this podcast, be sure to share it with your friends and rate and review and say some nice words about our podcast. Wherever you get your podcasts, you can leave us a wonderful review. And to Victor Benjamin... Thanks for sharing your time and know-how with us. You're an amazing guest, and I can't wait until we have a chance to chat again. And if you have any comments about our podcast, it's really simple. We have a special email address set up. I just send it to podcasts at commando.com. Oh, one more thing. If you're looking for the three-hour weekend Kim Commando Show podcast, the best place to get it is over at getkim.com. And once again, that address is getkim.com. And of course, I'm Kim Commando, and thanks for joining